Welcome to a PSA special webinar on extra comp exposure, how to combat no fault and hemp claims. So again, if this is working, you guys should be able to see me now. Hello everyone, thank you for attending. Uh, this is a live question and answer session as always, so feel free to post your questions and uh, we'll get to them at the end. So what is extra comp exposure? What is this term we've seemingly pulled out of nowhere? Um, and why this PSA webinar? So I have been seeing a lot of two things very specifically recently. Uh, No-fault claims, whether they're filed by uh, the no-fault carrier or filed by providers, if they're in arbitration, if they're in small claims court in New York, uh, and HIMP-1 claims, whether it's just the HIMP-1 form itself, it's an informal demand for reimbursement, uh, it's already gone to arbitration, whatever the case may be. So I have been seeing a lot of those two things uh, recently, and I thought we might want to do a little public service announcement on what you guys can be doing about them. So during the lifetime of a case, the carrier will pay indemnity and medical benefits, and both indemnity and medical are gonna be limited by the workers' comp law, right? Um, outside of the workers' compensation claim, though, a health insurer, provider, or no-fault carrier may try to get reimbursed for treatment expenses they believe the carrier should have paid. And we're gonna go ahead and call that outside of claim exposure, extra comp exposure. It's not really civil, it's not really GL, it's gonna fall under the workers' comp claim. Why this PSA? Uh, so in recent years, hemp on demands and bogus no-fault claims have skyrocketed. Uh, all too often, a carrier will pay the bill because they are unaware of their rights. And you have defenses, but um, you have to act on them timely. So when this arises, uh, generally, is potentially with denied medical treatment of any kind uh, at any time. All right, unpaid no-fault claims. And I have no-fault in uh, quotation marks there for a reason. Um, these are not really no-fault claims at all. Um, what they are is an unpaid medical bill that the carrier or uh, that the health insurer or provider decides is uh, a no-fault claim. So when the carrier denies a bill, the claimant is not responsible for payment. Um, while comp is primary to no-fault, we are only responsible to pay that which we are liable for under the workers' comp law. We know that. Uh, one of two things will happen with the medical bill. A no-fault carrier will pay for it or uh, the provider will submit it for debt collection. Once this happens, litigation is gonna follow, whether that's arbitration or uh, a civil case, uh, that depends on who's handling it, but you can bet once it goes to debt collection, one of these claims is gonna follow. Submitted no-fault claims. So this is where you actually receive something. It's not just an unpaid medical bill. So. Sometimes out of a lack of familiarity with the workers' comp process, a provider will submit a no-faults benefit application. You might see uh, in the board file every now and then something marked form NF3 on the side there where you see MedNAR or C4.0. That's what this is. So these are unprescribed forms. It'll say New York Motor Vehicle No-Fault Insurance Law on the top. Uh, it's typically gonna be a no-fault uh, form NF2, which is a benefits application. Uh, with an NF3 provider verification. Again, these are standardized forms. Um, you actually have to respond to these, and I can't, I can't stress that enough. So you have to issue an NF10 denial. Again, that's another prescribed form within 30 days, or alternatively, request additional verification from the provider within 15 business days. 
If you don't do that, the reason why I'm saying you must do this, even though we all know it's a workers' comp claim, that actually does confer jurisdiction on the American Arbitration Association. So you might be thinking to yourself, why am I getting hauled into this arbitration? We all know this is a workers' comp claim, lack of subject matter jurisdiction and you know righteous indignation. But uh, when you fail to deny these no-fault uh, applications within 30 days, uh, there's a whole line of ARB decisions and appeals and motions to stay arbitration uh, where it's just been held that the American Arbitration Association does have jurisdiction. So even if you get one of these, even if you just deny it on the basis that it's a workers' comp claim, which by the way is a valid basis to deny it, you gotta do it within 30 days. This is gonna be exhibit one at arbitration. So just keep that in mind. So no-fault arbitration versus litigation. Uh, a failure to timely respond to a no-fault claim, as we said, is gonna confer jurisdiction on the AAA. Um, the bill will be disputed in arbitration. There's, they have an electronic filing docket. You might have uh, seen it. It's on this website called Madria, and it has this uh, uploading system, and there's notices that come from the uh, AAA, um, and everything pretty much happens there. Any document you're gonna file, it gets notified to the AAA. Uh, you'll receive a notice of the hearing. They'll post settlement offers there. Everything happens in this lovely electronic docket. Um, your attorneys will not have access to it until they submit a letter of representation, but you should have access to it as you're likely registered in their system. So other times, suit will be filed by the provider or carrier as the claimant's assignee. Uh, you have probably seen these before. They're on a civil summons and complaint, and it'll say New York provider AAO claimant's name versus carrier. That's how the caption usually reads. These are going to be filed in small claims court, typically New York City civil court. So it'll say, you know, Bronx County civil court, Queens County civil court, one of those. So once these are filed, the complaint has to be answered the same as any other civil case. If it's served within the state of New York, it has to be responded to within 20 days. If it's um, served outside the state of New York, the response time is 30 days. The reason why I'm putting this here is if you intend to respond with a motion to dismiss, uh, CPLR 3211 in lieu of an answer. Um, technically, CPLR 3211 says that you can only file that in the time you have to answer. It must have been a timely motion, you know, under the time period to file an answer. So if you can't get to it within 30 days, just consider a um, stipulation extending your time to respond. Combating no-fault claims part one. So here's, here's why we're here today. Um, so one of our favorite tactics, and I'm going to give a shout out to uh, senior paralegal Jennifer Andrews for instituting this at our firm, uh, immediately request a police report. Now, why am I saying that? Believe it or not, a lot of times these are going to get filed even though there is no motor vehicle accident. And I know that sounds completely asinine, and I agree with you. It shouldn't be filed at all. Um, but a lot of times there will just be this, like I mentioned earlier, an unpaid medical bill, the provider sends it to a collections department, and the collections department refers it to an attorney who goes, oh, unpaid, carrier, no-fault claim, let's file a case in civil court, right? So uh, a lot of times these can be shot down pretty easily by just saying, okay, it's a motor vehicle accident, can you send me the report? And then you get the report and you see the listed carriers, and it turns out, surprise, surprise, the workers' comp carrier is not one of them on there because we don't pay no-fault benefits. We pay comp in lieu of no-fault benefits, which is an entirely separate thing. 
So a lot of times you can get the ball rolling here just by asking for a police report that they'll be wholly unprepared to provide. And by the way, we can confirm whether it was a motor vehicle accident by looking in the, at basically any document in the board file. Um, you can also ask for proof of submission of the proper no-fault forms. I mentioned the NF2 benefits application, the NF3 provider verification. Um, if they had not submitted those, and a lot of times these complaints will allege that they have submitted them and they're attached as exhibits, but then they're never attached as exhibits because they were never submitted. Um, if they have not actually submitted those, then you're not even going to be able to make that argument that, that jurisdiction was conferred upon the AAA. So immediately start your investigation and ask these guys to put up or shut up. Uh, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. Most of the times they're going to be unprepared to provide these documents because they don't exist. Um, make sure that your appearance is recorded and answers filed, etc. So uh, the reason I phrase it like that is if it's in arbitration, you need to go into the arbitration docket and take note of any deadlines they've set for submitting documents, when the hearing is coming up, anything of that nature. Uh, and as we discussed earlier, if you're going to file a motion to dismiss in lieu of an answer once you get one of those civil complaints, that has to be done within the time period for responding under the CPLR, which is 20 days in-state, 30 days out. Um, then you can push counsel to provide a stipulation of discontinuance. Depends on the attorney's office. They're all a little different. Some of them are more reasonable than others. You just send them, you know, the C3, the notice of decision, whatever else you may have saying, hey, look, this is a comp case. Why are we here? And they'll go, oh, you're right. Here's a stip of discontinuance. Um, that's the best case scenario. So try for that out of the gate before you go down the litigation rabbit hole. The other thing you could try, if that doesn't work, you have to remember these guys are just out for their money. So um, you could consider a de minimis settlement offer. Um, I will just offer one caveat on this. This risks encouraging bad behavior, right? Uh, every time they file one of these bogus claims, nobody fights them on it. And even if they get back 50 cents on the dollar, hey, they got back something. So why not keep filing them? Um, so, you know, while it might not make sense to put your foot down, you know, on a $100 or even a $500 case, I would strongly encourage you if you're getting inundated with these civil complaints at some point to consider fighting back and just filing the CPLR 3211 motion. Uh, I'm going to go into what you can do with that motion or what you can do with an answer and affirmative defenses in a moment. Um, but if it's a small amount, just consider making a de minimis settlement offer and just see if you can get out from under it. Um, going to throw this in here as a nice little bonus because I've seen several of our attorneys in this firm use this in their comp cases to pretty devastating effect sometimes. Um, these no-fault benefits applications, there's actually a box they have to check as to whether this injury was work-related. Uh, and also, the claimant is typically going to sign off on an assignment of benefits because technically, the right to get paid by the carrier belongs to the claimant. In theory, the claimant pays out of pocket, then they submit a claim for reimbursement to their insurance carrier and their insurance carrier reimburses it. Well, they cut out the middleman and a lot of times the claimant will just sign off on a benefits assignment form, which um, gives the provider the right to make the claim to the insurance carrier. So um, a lot of times they, well, on, on these forms, there's a box to check off that says whether or not the injury was work-related. Sometimes claimants will in fact check off that the injury was not work-related and you can actually hold this against them in the workers' comp claim. For instance, if you're, um, 
if you're pushing uh, denial and you're arguing that the injury wasn't work-related, this is something that can actually be held against them. Combating no-fault claims part two. So uh, I mentioned the issue with the jurisdictional argument. You may lose it at arbitration, but you can still raise it. Um, you're going to argue all your defenses to compensability under the workers' comp law, you know, medical treatment guidelines, medical necessity. Uh, you're still going to raise all of those at arbitration. Race judicata, if it was previously disposed of by the workers' comp board, so we have a CA.1b that was resolved in your favor, for instance. Failure to state a claim. You are not a no-fault carrier. You've never offered no-fault coverage. This wasn't a motor vehicle accident. That's another basis for dismissal. Action barred by Section 29.6 or Section 11 of the Workers' Comp Law. So um, this is the one that says that a claimant or a um, that the claimant cannot sue their employer or their insurance carrier or a coworker. So you can act when they're filing as a signee of the claimant. This is actually barred by the Workers' Comp Law technically. It's claimant versus carrier. And counterclaims and arguments for malicious prosecution and frivolous litigation. You'll see I put in parentheses here 22 NYCRR 130-1.1. So these no-fault attorneys will sign off on a um, little statement on these litigation backs that says, we've investigated this case, and after a reasonable investigation, we've determined that this is not frivolous, uh, and hence we're filing it. So hold that against them. When you file this CPLR 3211 motion, uh, include that you want reimbursement of your costs and fees because of frivolous litigation. Alternatively, if you're filing an answer, consider filing a counterclaim for malicious prosecution or frivolous litigation. A lot of times this puts the fear of God into them and you can either get the discontinuance or um, negotiate a more favorable settlement. So what is the difference between no fault and hemp? So I will point out that um, there are several HIMP1 webinars. We did one in February 2022. I would recommend checking those out. I'm not going to go into detail on the HIMP process. But a no-fault claim is when a provider or no-fault carrier seeks reimbursement for bills they believe were covered under no-fault. Uh, a HIMP is when the claimant's health insurer has paid for treatment and submits the request through the workers' comp board. As with no-fault, there is a prescribed HIMP1 form, and there are timelines for responding. So let's give you some quick hemp pointers. So first, beware the fishing expedition claims and intimidation tactics. So something I see a lot, and I encourage you not to pay these. You'll just get a letter that says, it's, it'll be from one of these hemp agents, HCSG, Rawlings Company, Meridian, HMS. Uh, and it'll say something to the effect of, we've determined that this is a workers' comp claim. Please pay us. Here are instructions for how to pay it. And then if you don't pay it, 30 days, once you get 30 days in, you'll get a notice saying 30 days have gone by. You really need to pay this. Well, that is not a HIMP-1 reimbursement request. If it were, there would be a HIMP-1 form that they signed off on and filled out all the information. So watch out for those phishing expedition letters and the intimidation tactics of 30-day and 60-day notices. You're not obligated really to respond until you have that HIMP-1 form in hand. Immediately note the date of service under part one of the HIMP form. So they'll fill out all the boxes and then they'll put their name on it uh, and there'll be a little signature and then there'll be a date. That's the operative date for the purposes of serving your objections. So note that you have to ensure your objection is served within 90 days. A failure to do so waives almost all of your defenses. 
I'm going to go into the ones that are still applicable, uh, even if you fail to timely object, but you're best off just objecting. Make sure to object on part two of the HEMP1 form. It doesn't matter if you send them a letter that raises a bunch of valid objections. The rules say you have to fill out part two and send that back. Uh, remember your rights of extension and investigation. So the rules say that the health insurer cannot unreasonably um, refuse to grant an extension if you need time to get the records. And the HIMP rules and regs say you have uh, a right to get the records from the providers who have to provide them within 14 days. So if you wanna do some additional digging, ask for an, uh, an extension of 90 days. Most of them will be willing to stipulate to it. They have to under the rules. And then ask the provider to produce the records. Um, if you intend to ultimately settle, I would still serve your objection in high exposure hemp's to uh, preserve your defenses in case settlement ultimately falls through. So this is in your several hundred thousand dollar hemp's. I wouldn't just offer settlement and count on them to follow through on it. I would make sure you're still serving your objection on part two of the form to cover your bases. How can I see a hemp coming? So. If you see a health insurer or a HIMP agent, HCSG, Rawlings Company, we talked about those as a party of interest in eCase, um, a reimbursement request has been submitted to the board. So you click on the party of interest tab and you'll see uh, a list of different parties and you'll see a health insurer, Anthem or one of those and a HIMP agent usually. Uh, if a CA.1 is resolved in our favor, we all know the proposed decision says per section 13F, the claimant is not responsible for payment. Uh, so you can bet somebody else is paying for that. So ask yourself the question, if we are not responsible and the claimant is not responsible, how is this doctor ultimately getting paid? That's how you can see a hemp coming. Here are some standard issues that give rise to hemp on exposure. One of them is uh, by far the most common, ER treatment on the data loss or early in the case. Uh, nobody knows that it's a comp claim yet, so uh, the health insurer ends up paying. Denied claims, disputed or consequential injury sites, the claimant continues to treat while causal relationship is under litigation, for instance. Uh, MG2 or C4 auth denials, significant surgeries, many times we might pay the facility but not the providers. Uh, just be wary of accepting injury sites in a section 32 just to get a case settled. Um, get an idea of your potential hemp exposure first if there was a litigated injury site. While you may be able to get a couple CA.1s out of the way in this section 32 just to get the case settled, you might be giving the health insurer another year to submit a hemp demand because they have a year from the date of ANCR or acceptance. So I won't go through these in detail because we do have uh, a couple hemp webinars out there already and a couple articles, but here are your specific objections, no ANCR or acceptance, untimely service, no causal relationship, authorization requested and denied, fee in excess of the fee schedule, you need to support this with a calculation. Just note this applies in every single case. At bare minimum, you should be raising the fee schedule in response to every HIMP one you get. Uh, bill should have been prorated with another provider. Carrier cannot determine responsibility for payment from documents served. Prior payment to the provider, note you need proof, typically in the form of your EOBs. Treatment after the meds were closed via section 32. Section 29, third-party settlement credit offset that you're carrying forward. This is your burns rate argument. Treatment outside of the medical treatment guidelines. And uh, basically, to determine whether any of these objections apply, I would just ask the very simple question, would I have been able to object to this treatment if it had been done under the workers' compensation claim as normal? So there's catch-all and prohibited objections under the hemp rules and regulations. 
Um, under other on the HIMP-1 form, number 12, you can interpose any objection that demonstrates the request for reimbursement should not be made. Uh, a HIMP is not eligible for reimbursement or arbitration if the case is neither accepted nor established. Here are things you cannot object based on, however. No prior authorization under WCL 13A5. Failure of the provider to file required notices. Those are your C4, C4.0s or uh, MedNARs or any of those things. Treatment excessive or too frequent, uh, unless it's outside the MTGs. And hospitalization excessive or unnecessary, again, unless inconsistent with the MTGs. So what happens if you fail to timely object? And this is the one that I'm seeing a lot recently. If you have an arbitration request or acknowledgement in hand, it is likely already too late. Uh, almost all of your defenses are waived if you didn't file an objection within the first 90 days. However, there are a few you could still try here. It's ineligible for arbitration if there was no ANCR or acceptance. If you've designated an address for service of HIMPS and they didn't stick to it, you can argue improper service. Um, you can argue that no full match was obtained from the board, so if they didn't provide any information on part one, it's likely they never even went out and got a match, or if they're not parties of interest in e-case. And if none of these apply, I would consider running the fee schedule and offering to pay their $175 filing fee to the health insurer in lieu of arbitration. Uh, a lot of times if you just say, hey, here's what we owe under the fee schedule, I'll give you your ARB filing fee back, you can avoid having this arbitration award entered against you with interest. So here are some takeaways. Uh, while these extra comp demands happen outside the board process, they must be timely responded to. Uh, never just pay one of these demands. Remember your defenses, your right of investigation, and the settlement strategies we talked about. Posture yourself for success. Keep an eye on potential extra comp exposure throughout the workers' comp claim if there's denied medical treatment. Uh, and don't be afraid to fight back. Consider these counterclaims or this motion to dismiss under CPLR 3211. So with that, I hope you guys found this helpful. Let's see if we have any questions. No, I am not seeing any questions. Well, uh, if you ever have any of these issues arise on uh, one of your cases, feel free to give us a call or email me cmajor at loisllc.com. Uh, otherwise, I'll see you next time. We have another webinar coming up next week, I believe. So thank you for attending this special PSA and remember to fight back.